I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Vent Weekly. I'm Amelia. COVID-19's changed the way we live and we've adapted in ways we could have never even imagined. Even with some lockdown restrictions lifting, I can understand why it's still so overwhelming for so many of us. So if you're done with COVID-19, this mini-series may not be for you. But if you do have questions or anxieties around COVID-19 that you haven't spoken about, we've got you. This series, we're getting you your answers. Hi, I'm Mahera. I'm 18. I live in Bent. What I really want to know is that what are the true intentions of the COVID-19 journalists? Are they really trying to help us through the tough times and give us advice? Or are they really trying to centralise the articles so they can get more people to read them and induce fear onto us, making us more confused about COVID-19 than helping us through this tough time? So, today I'm joined by Mahira and also Jim Waterson, media editor for The Guardian. Thank you both for joining me. I'm like really excited to talk to you guys. Do you guys want to go in turns and just introduce yourselves and say a little bit more about what you do? I want to hear about Mahira. Let's hear from Mahira. Cool, yeah. Hi, <laughs> Hi my name's Mahira. I'm, I'm yeah. 18 years old and I live in Brent and I'm starting uni in September and I just got my A-level results. So it all went well, thank God. I wasn't affected. I'm going mm-hmm. to uni of Greenwich and hopefully I'm going to study digital marketing and an advertising degree. Very excited. Wow. Congrats. Congratulations, sis. I'm really happy for you. Thank you so much. And what about you, Jim? Uh, it's a long time since I did my A-levels. 15 years. <laughs> um, I'm the media editor at The Guardian, which is a really weird job. It's it's one of the very few remaining jobs like it. And my job is to report on the media for a media outlet. So right. you can imagine I'm really unpopular with everyone else who works in journalism. <laughs> it's it's how information gets around. It's like who's doing stuff they shouldn't. It's uh, mm. when the BBC does something wrong and I'm the one who'll report on the media itself. So it's a really, really fun job. So when it comes to like pre-corona, how would The Guardian choose like what news to cover and kind of are you at the top of those decisions or do you have like a team that helps you with that? Oh, I'm way down the chain on those decisions. Oh. So, there's so many people above me who have so much more uh, ability to call the shots on that. The normal structure is in almost any newsroom that there's editors who will have deputies who will then talk to reporters. And the way it works is that the reporters put forward, you know, like, I've heard this, I've heard this, I've heard this, you know, maybe five or six things. And the editor will go, look, I think two or three of those things are worth you having a look at. And then maybe, if you're lucky, one or two of them, once you've really put the phone calls in and done the work, ends up as a story. So mm-hmm. it's quite a messy process and it's quite a lot of human judgment involved in deciding which news ends up being written and which doesn't. And it's the same on TV as well. Mm. So, you know, like when the pandemic began, was it a faster process in terms of what was being put out by The Guardian? We were putting out so much. <laughs> 
this is the biggest news story in any of our lives. Yeah. You know, a truly global news story affecting every single aspect of people's lives. It's it's unprecedented. So in something like those first few weeks of the pandemic, it was so incredibly crazy that our role was half providing sort of like just accurate information, like what should I do? Should I stay inside? Is it safe? And therefore, I urge you, at this moment of national emergency. The government advises this. To stay at home, protect our NHS and save lives. What does the latest science say? And then a lot on sort of how this is impacting people's lives and how it's going to force them to change things. The secondary set of stories, like how is this big thing affecting this thing in a way that you hadn't considered it? And then there's the entertaining stuff, which is like, Captain Tom Moore just like walking around his garden to raise money for the NHS. Yes, I'm in this garden in Bedfordshire that's become the focus of global attention with an amazing man. People were so in need of some positive news that they seized on that. Twelve and a half million pounds this morning and still rising. Can you believe it? How much? But the first few weeks, people were just flocking to read the news and now people we're just this is normal life now right we're all just used to it so so you can see things have gone back to kind of normal levels of news yeah because i remember when i was in student school every every lunch my friends will refresh the page to see how many cases came up Mm. in brent like today and we were never this obsessed with your news until corona happened yeah i think that's so true as well especially within our generation too because this is i feel like this is the time like where we've been most engaged like with the news and like this is the most I've seen people my age engage with like politics and society and culture and stuff like that so it's kind of been interesting to see in a way but um this story like with the whole pandemic is quite a scary one which is always good for like publicity etc yeah but it's worth remembering why we see these stories from some media outlets which look yeah. like they are fear-mongering um it's because people click on them. It's because people read them. We, as humans, are suckers for extreme stories and narratives and fearing the worst. And so that then, uh, unscrupulous media outlets, creates incentives to exaggerate and make things seem worse than they are mm. because then you just end up with more clicks. And that's that's really the flaw in our current system is that it rewards the more extreme headlines and the more extreme content. Yeah, Mahira... Do you have any examples of any stories you've seen where you feel as though like that's been happening? Yeah, I actually do. So I found a Telegraph article from right at the start of the pandemic about what was going on in Wuhan, China. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it really exacerbates coronavirus. And it says, mask-wearing patients fainting in the street. Hundreds of fearful citizens lining cheek by jowl at risk of infecting each other in narrow hospital corridors as they wait to be treated by doctors in forbidden white hazmat suits, a fraught medic screaming in anguish. <laughs> it sounds like a story you read, like for like an English exam, it has so many buzzing words in it. And like so many articles also use the phrase killer virus and I think it scares people more than helping them to try and know more about it and how to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. What about you, Jim? What do you think of that? Mahira, please don't make me defend the Telegraph. But I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna ask you this. So I don't know that article you just read out. I haven't heard of it before. You just read it out now. But do we know like whether any of that's false? Because like it was horrific in the hospitals. It's easy now when we're sort of all wandering around parks again. But those first few months were horrific. And I guess 
I guess if they did get across just how bad it felt in there, then wasn't that kind of like telling people to take it seriously? Is it is it unnecessarily scaring people? I kind of I don't really know because I don't know whether any of that's untrue. And if it's true, then like what's wrong with reporting it? So I I, I want to know what you think about that. I think like reporting on it and like uh, making a serious um, article about it is fine. I think they just use like obviously as a journalist you need more like clicks and views. So someone sees that's the first paragraph and the title says killer virus. Of course people are gonna click on it like as a human. We are like a natural to like drama. We want to see something exciting. Mm. Click on it. But I feel like when they called it forbidding white hazmat suits, or like of um, hundreds fainting in the street, I think some things like some sentences I think a bit too exaggerated. If it gets to the wrong person who is almost paranoid, it will fuel even more paranoia, and it can be it can be really bad to their psychological health. So, yeah. Mm. Do you guys feel as though it's possible to tell a good story which may play on people's fears? and have a sensible reason analysis of a situation? Like, is it possible to do both at the same time? Well, I think the, the bit that I come back to is, is it based on the truth? Mm. If a situation is truly horrific, like I remember reporting from the Caribbean after a hurricane went through and I've never seen anything like it. You know, you're clambering o- over like expensive million pound yachts to try and get to a road and there's not a single tree on the hillside and when you're looking at a scene like that you can't help but use like exaggerated language it's extraordinary it's like Mm -hmm. to try and explain to someone who's not there it's got to be you know adjectives falling out of your ears because you just can't you can't uh you, you can't get it across otherwise and If it's clickbait and they're just putting, making things seem worse than they are for the hell of a good headline, then that is bad. But if it's something is truly extraordinary, you have to go, look, this is the human story that tells the horror of what's going on here. You know, it it can't be sanitised if it's an attempt to sort of explain what the greater truth is that's going on in these situations. Yeah, but is it always necessary for you to have to exaggerate yeah. To tell an accurate story. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm just going to clarify. I don't want to exaggerate on the facts. I'm yeah, saying yeah, that yeah. the language can seem exaggerated mm. compared to a, a normal way of telling a story because that is how stories are told. That's how literature works. Yeah. I mean, I think that's fair. I think that's a fair yeah, point, to be honest. So. Um, I think, do you know what, yeah? Because I, I study, like, literature anyway. So I find the role of language in this kind of stuff very, very interesting. Um, and I feel like, okay, for example, like we kind of touched on the word killer. The coronavirus is the biggest threat this country has faced for decades. I feel like they're kind and of personifying a virus. Definitely. All over the world, we're seeing the devastating impact of this invisible killer. Obviously, it can kill you, but, you know, people die from the flu every year anyway. They die from other illnesses as well, but they're not kind of labelled as a killer. Mm. I can't get over how chill both of you are. I, like, <laughs> come on, like, the whole world has been upended. Like, this is horrific. People are dying all around the world. I mean, the, the whole economy is about to collapse. The government about is on to, the edge. Yeah. The prime minister almost died in hospital. I mean... What, what, and you, you're saying that people are exaggerating what's going no, on? No, you know what? It's the it, most extraordinary time. Because, like, it is. I, like... but I just feel like, in terms of us being a bit like nonchalant, I don't think it's that. I think mm-hmm. it's just like we have been kind of like overwhelmed and bombarded with information. That's true. Like, for 
quite a few months on end, which is quite stressful, to be honest, because it's affected people in my life personally as well. I feel like just remaining calm and trying to like digest bits of information, I think that's, that's what's helping people get through it. So I kind of take your point, Jim, in terms of like, you know, life is just not the same, but like, I don't really know what I'm expected to do. Like I'm one person, so I feel like a lot of people feel like we just have to kind of take things a day at a time. Do you feel as though this is the time to be like um, clickbait articles or is it a time to actually keep people composed and like keep people calm? Yeah, I was thinking because also the consequences of the articles and like calling the China virus, that people are now discriminating against East Asians. And now whenever they see someone who who's East Asian, they just call them Chinese, like, oh, you got the reason why it came here, you're the reason. And they call all East Asian now Chinese people. Exactly. And like, where would they get that information from if not from the media? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. What do you say to that? <laughs> okay, so, so this is really weird because I spend most of my time criticising the media and I'm sort of finding myself having to sort of not quite defend it, but explain where it fits in. And I think one of the really messy things is the way that the media, i.e. like old newspapers, websites attached to newspapers, TV, radio, Twitter, Instagram, WhatsApp. It's all kind of getting swirled up into like one big idea of just information that's around us. Mm -hmm. And because of how we consume media now, sort of just through a feed designed by an algorithm, we're not really distinguishing when we talk about the media, what we mean by that. We end up treating everything very much the same regardless of its source mm. and i'd be really intrigued to know honestly where do you think you get most of your information from rather than thinking about the media so i spend a lot of time on twitter but usually it's not what people are saying on twitter they might copy and paste a link from an article so my primary source would be Twitter as I go on that. But then my secondary sources would like genuinely be from the BBC, from the Guardian, Telegraph, anything like that, basically, like who reports on um, stuff to do with the pandemic or anything, really. Or I get like the news bulletins on my phone. But what about you, Mahira? Where do you get yours from? Yeah, it's the same with like, what you said. Yeah. Like Twitter, obviously I fact check it on BBC. You know, people go always spreading around fake news. Exactly. Well, I'm going to let you in on a, on, a, on a secret then, which is that if you actually look at the stats on what gets clicked through from Twitter links, you would be shocked. <laughs> really? So let's say uh, you spend ages on like a really serious investigation into disability payments that are being not sent to the people who should be receiving them, something that's really important for those people and really bad by the government. And if you tweet that out, you'll see like 500 people retweet it and like 300 people click the link because everyone wants to show that they care about that and oh yeah, no, we know that's important. Right. You then tweet out something that is kind of just like gossipy and stupid and no one will retweet it, but the click through will be through the roof. And what I'm saying is that we, thanks to stats, can see the honesty of what people are reading and it's never what people say they read. And so anyone trying to do proper reputable journalism is kind of fighting against that. And the smartest thing if you're a news consumer, if you're trying to understand where information is coming from and why you're reading certain things, is understand the business model of the outlet that you're looking at. And in Twitter's case, they just want your attention. Mm, I mean, in a way, it just seems a bit more difficult for people who aren't in the media industry to understand that because obviously like many of us don't have that career or 
level of understanding about how media can sometimes be like what we want is not always what we're going to get but I still feel as though there's a more the onus is on the people who are producing the media, like the journalists, etc., to be a little bit more responsible with their articles so that, like, you know, we don't have to fall into the trap of clicking on things that aren't actually accurate. You know, like, stuff like to do with a global pandemic because you can't be false with that kind of information. Like, you can't bring fake news on something that is so very real. So how do we minimise that? OK, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you both. I want you to answer honestly. I'm going to ask you a question. Here's a little conundrum. So you've got a friend who works at a hospital and they tell you that it's a disaster. The pandemic's back. No one's reporting on this. And you could take it to a journalist, which would be a good thing to do, and they might try and check it out. But the media industry, finances are collapsing. There's very few jobs left. There might not be a journalist you could get in touch with. So you decide to just tweet it out mm. on your personal account and it goes mega viral. Everyone, like 30, 40,000 retweets, it's blowing up, your phone can't keep up. And then the government says this is completely false. Should the government have the right to delete your tweet? Yes. yes. I mean, if it's been confirmed. What if the, gov- what if the government's lying? <laughs> I think that's where, that's the middle, that's the grey area. That's where it gets scary in the media because someone come up and say, yeah, this is real, this happened to me, I saw it, but you, you actually don't know their true intentions. Yeah, I mean, for one, I would say that the government also is irresponsible in terms of the truth, Well, they try to do a lot of damage control anyway. Yes, I think. And secondly, when I say that they should take the tweet down, I mean that more as an end result. So I would need to see proper evidence of the fact that what I said was false first. But if the case is that I, what I've tweeted and it's gone viral, reached a lot of people, like thousands or millions of people, and that's false, then they should delete it, but with evidence. I want you to contradict me factually. But the problem is, as soon as you start trying to work out who should be the final person having the say on that, then you have problems. Now, if a news outlet that's responsible puts out something false, hopefully it would suffer reputational damage and hopefully the journalist would be in some way punished. Obviously, we know that a lot of media outlets that doesn't happen. At The Guardian, I can tell you it would. But the social media platforms... Who do you want to have the power to rule on what's true or not on that? Do you want it to be the people who run Twitter? Do you want it to be uh, the government? Because certainly, like, some governments around the world, you would not want ruling on this stuff. And then there's the other issue of if you saw something with your own eyes and you tweeted out, you, you, you sort of will feel, I told the story that I saw, even if from a different angle it looked different. So it's, it's just messy. All of, all of news and information is messy while you try and reach that sort of attempt to find the truth at the heart mm. of everything. So they could hire people like journalists or experts in particular fields of topics to approve what's being put out. But how would it work, you know, to approve every tweet when I send it? Like, you've just sent your tweet, please wait (laughs) 10 minutes while Jim has a look and sees whether he thinks it's true or not. Like, and you're like, why, why is this guy fact-checking everything that I'm saying? I was just making a joke with my friends. So there's, there's so much that's messy. We currently have a sort of total free-for-all. But the old world where there was just, you know, a dozen national newspapers, five TV channels. I had five TV <laughs> channels growing up. Can you imagine that? Um, and a few national radio stations. And that wasn't good. That didn't have, like, a diversity of views and thought. That stopped stuff getting out there. And also lies and hate were regularly spewed by tabloids on their front page. And now, at least, the one person with a Twitter account can go viral for 
dunking on the sun. <laughs> and you can see that the tabloids genuinely have been forced to change just because of Twitter constantly having a go at them. It's still got a long way to go, but I guess what I'm saying is that at the moment it's complete chaos, but don't think it was better when everything was controlled. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I hear what you're saying yeah, entirely. That makes sense, yeah. So what do you guys think um, are the consequences of playing on people's fears? Because um, I'm thinking back to, like, um, where everyone was panic buying. Mm, yeah. There wasn't much to see in the toilet roll aisle of this supermarket. What was left was in serious demand. And Mahira made a really good point about the increased um, discrimination and racism against the Asian community as well. What does the role of playing on people's fear do to us as a society? The problem is the act of stockpiling is in itself contagious, with the sight of people bulk buying, only encouraging others to do the same. I think there was a big division around the beginning of COVID because you have people that's discriminating against Asians and then you have this guy, I think in America, where he stock bought so many like um, hand sanitizers and toilet roll and he's gonna, he's gonna sell it on Amazon for way more. See, so, so you have some, someone manipulating the situation and then you, then you have other people being discriminated against. So we, I think we were definitely separate. What do you think about that, Jim? Um, I think the interesting thing about what Mahira just said was how much of that was being spread through turbocharged Facebook groups, local people just chatting on WhatsApp and kind of circumventing a load of the traditional media. And I, I guess that's the sort of one thing I'd ask you to kind of like to ponder is how much of it is what remains of the traditional media industry, which has definitely played a big role in sowing a lot of this division in the past. And how much of it now is the big tech companies providing a platform on which to distribute it directly from person to person as as hateful information and that's the thing that really scares me is that how do you stop that it's one thing to stop a few media outlets being vile but how do you stop sort of whole chunks of society yeah, see i think this is yeah. it that you've made such a great point there because i feel like this pandemic has unveiled a lot of flaws within society anyway that isn't the responsibility of a media outlet. Like, some people already had toxic or corrupt views before this pandemic started. I don't know what you yeah. think about that, Mahira. Well, what you said made sense, and also what Jim said made sense, because I think the hatred and stuff really came from misinformation. Because COVID-19 was new, not a lot of people knew really what it was. Information spread really fast compared to the actual information news agencies had. So, Mahira, did yeah. you get any messages on WhatsApp during the early days of the pandemic from someone being like, yeah, my brother's cousin says that he's working in a hospital and he's heard this. And you've got no idea where it's come from. Yeah, especially my mum. My mum used to be like, oh, lemon is good for you. And like, burn this thing in the house. WhatsApp told me this and that. And like, mum, no, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Right, so that's exactly so, it. Your mum is on WhatsApp sitting there. Yeah. Her friend sends her something. Well, her friend wouldn't like. She trusts her friend. Exactly. In a way that she wouldn't trust a mainstream outlet. Maybe correctly, maybe wrongly. But she's getting it straight from that mate and believing it and yeah. suddenly next thing she's like burning incense everywhere and trying to make you eat a lemon. <laughs> exactly. I feel like parents are kind of innocent to kind of stuff. I don't really know what's, what's fake. So whatever comes to them, they just believe it. And honestly, the power of the mainstream media is just collapsing in many respects. And the number of people who will see that random viral WhatsApp that has gone around like the local area will often be more than would read an article on a national newspaper website about the same topic. So that's quite hard for people to get their heads around, that, 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 that actually 
the power is in the person who's coming up with that WhatsApp message as much as the national newspaper editor of a smaller title. But I think our generation and like people that are, um, like know about technology, they know that there's real and fake news. I think some adults don't really know that. So that's why whatever comes to them, they believe it straight away mm. as well. Yeah, one of the really good things about your generation is you're so cynical. Like, you'll, you're like, you're, it's like, where are the receipts? Show me the receipts before I believe it. I need a full screen grab of the entire WhatsApp conversation. No, not that page. I want you to scroll all the way up and I need everything before I'm even beginning to give this any credence. Whereas if you've grown up with like, well, they wouldn't allow it to go on TV if it wasn't true. Well, they wouldn't put it in the paper if it wasn't true then if you've grown up with that mentality and someone starts sending you stuff, then you'll just believe it. The government is always like, we need better education in schools about fake news. Rubbish, we need better education for like 60-year-olds. That's where the problem is. (laughs) Exactly, no, I entirely agree. And that's so true, literally. I feel like it's, it's so weird how we've become more the adults of the technology age and the adults are just like the kids in terms of like learning about it. But I think there's also two sides of social media. Like during the BLM protest, some media like in america didn't really show the whole truth but social media Twitter, they showed you everything all the aspects and social media could be a good thing but also a bad thing it really depends on like on the context especially with that such a good example as well because i feel like social media really does show you the real like it shows you the things that the media does not want to put out there because it might incriminate the law enforcement or it could incriminate you know the mm-hmm. toxicity of like higher institutions for example and the people on the ground, which is us, will show you what really what's going on. But, um, Mahira, do you have any final thoughts? Do you feel like this discussion has affected your trust like in mainstream news media, or are you still kind of... Trust me, trust me. <laughs> I, I, I actually do. I, I actually, it's changed a bit, because what you said about how consumers were, like, the reason why COVID articles going up, because... That's what we read the most. We are part of it. So I do trust it more. And now, now, because I don't really know a lot about the media side of news agencies, but now I met someone who does, and he told me a lot about it. I have shifted a bit, but sometimes I can still have a bit of my worries. So the number one way that you can influence the sort of media that you want to read mm. is to share and boost the stories that you really like on topics that you care about Definitely. don't just go oh, i like that share it on twitter facebook because then the people running that site will see those extra clicks those extra views and go huh i didn't think that the audience would respond to that maybe next time we'll write less about that thing that you don't care about and more about that thing that you just read that you shared and thought was brilliant so you're an active player in this and like write to editors and say why aren't you covering this and the answer is probably they didn't know about it tell people if you if you want to sort of the media should do a lot of the changing itself but also if you want to play an active role you can have quite a lot of influence just by sending a quick email or a quick tweet or something right and financially support outlets that are writing the stories that you care about because to be really frank like this pandemic is going to cause a massive recession and a lot of media outlets that people know are going to go bust so if you like that little site that is doing that brilliant bit of reporting, that's the sort of site that it's worth chucking a few quid towards because they can't write it without paying their staff. Yeah. It's not entirely up to consumers, but it's just like you, you have got a role if you want to play it. Mm-hmm.
Oh my gosh, well guys, I'm actually so grateful like to have spoken to both of you. I had a feeling this one would be a really good conversation, but it's definitely like exceeded my expectations. So thank you both so much for coming on. Thanks very much, that was fun. Thank you. And, and, and you know, Mahir, if I can convince just one person to trust <laughs> the good bits of the media a bit more, you can drop me an email and I'll, like, I'll answer anything. So, uh, you know, try me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Vent Weekly Bonus COVID-19 Fact Checkers. I've been Amelia, and thanks to Mahira and Jim for joining me. This episode was produced by Rose Delara Beattie, with help from the event production team, Jess Lawson, Lucas Fothergill, and Maweed Majid. Vent is a collaboration between Vice and Brent London Bar of Culture 2020. I never stop reading the news. I'm so obsessed. I'm weird like that. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, Things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.